Coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we speak with national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces and you are listening in. This month, two big things drop. My book, Fortune, drops on February 8th. In it, I trace 10 generations of my family, demonstrating how laws and policies impacted the course of my family's future and fortunes. Then the book calls for repair of all that race broke in our world. The second thing that drops will be a new podcast called The Four. The Four will gather four national and international Black faith leaders for deep dives on issues that concern the Black community. It will feature Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, Reverend Michael Ray Matthews, Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis, and me, So last month, we spoke with Reverend Michael Ray Matthews. This month, we welcome Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, the jazz-influenced pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ and executive producer of Unashamed Media Group. As we pick up the push for repair of what race broke in the world, I want to talk with Pastor Otis, who went on a hunger strike for voting rights, along with seven other Morehouse men and 24 other Black clergy. We'd love to hear your thoughts, so please tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us, and keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks and letting us know what you think. All right, so on January 6th, you and a bunch of other faith leaders, including seven other Morehouse men, began a hunger strike, Otis, for voting rights. You've committed to strike through MLK Day at least to call the Senate to end the filibuster and pass legislation to protect the right to vote. So, Pastor Otis, can you tell us the story of how this hunger strike came to be? Certainly. First, I want to say thank you, Lisa Sharon Harper, for allowing me to be on the Freedom Road podcast. Once again, (laughs) it is always a delight and an honor and joy to be with you and so appreciative of the work you are doing in Philly and across the globe. And the community of of Trinity loves you. And we are so excited about what Fortune is going to do in this world. And thank you for doing the the, the research on your family. It's truly a blessing. And to be a part of that project is is quite an honor. So So, so thank you very much. And it's really a blessing to be be on here with you. The the, the strike was really the, the brainchild of a Morehouse brother by the name of Reverend Stephen Green who is the chair of the Faith for Black Lives in Harlem, New York. He is a minister and an organizer, just a wonderful, wonderful brother who is is in the streets doing work and also pastors out of the AME tradition. Shout out to all the AMEs on on, on the podcast. Wow, cool. Reverend Green gave me a call along with several other Morehouse brothers, Jamal Bryant, Devin Crawford and uh, Willie Francois and, and a few others saying, would you participate in this hunger strike? And we thought it was just a wonderful idea uh, to highlight 
the issue of voting rights as we're coming to uh, the Martin Luther King Jr. celebration, commemoration, holiday. And we felt that by putting our bodies on the line, just as our ancestors have put their bodies on the line, to highlight voting rights, but know that it is a sacred right. It is a sacred sacrament to partake in voting rights for people of African descent. And that was the impetus for the hunger strike. And as a result, more people joined on, like our sister, Reverend Tracy Blackman. Mm-hmm. Other organizations said that they would join for, for a day and that they would highlight. Uh, Reverend Cornell Brooks, who is at mm. Harvard University, who's the former CEO and president of uh, the NAACP, joined in. So, so mm-hmm. we have a wonderful group of people, primarily, I want the listeners to know this, primarily millennial ministers in wow. South Carolina wow. and Georgia. What? So these are, yes, the majority oh of the God. group are millennial ministers. Many of them are in their first appointment, are assistant pastors, are fresh out of seminary, yes. graduate school. They are in smaller locales in South Carolina and Georgia. We're not talking Atlanta. We're, we're talking about the, uh, the Buforts and the small spaces outside of Charleston and Columbia, outside of, of Atlanta, right outside of Macon and Augusta and Albany. So the beauty of this is that yeah. you have people who are in spaces where these state laws are affecting their ability to vote. Exactly. And they are the ones that are participating in the hunger strike. It's actually a whole lot like the civil rights movement. I mean, because that was based in the communities that were most impacted. And you had MLK leading at like 20-something. He was an effectively in a, you know, a millennial. He was that younger Absolutely. generation. He was wow. part of that younger generation. Wow. Wow. And so why call it a hunger strike and not a fast? I did the fast for families on the National Mall. And remember, mm-hmm. we had like a big back and forth about whether we were going to call it a hunger strike or wow. fast. And... Actually, it was one of the organizers who were also a part of organizing um, Cesar Chavez fast, who insisted, no, this needs to be a fast because it needs to be grounded in our faith tradition. And it really needs to draw from the power of our faith. So why did you choose hunger strike as opposed to fast? Well, we recognize that it is a fast, but Mm -hmm. we believe that in terms of secular culture, Mm-hmm. They understand the idea of hunger strike, that we mm-hmm. are on strike. Uh-huh. We feel that the Democratic Party has not done its due diligence, has taken black people for granted. We've been talking about voting rights for the last you know, 10 years, oh. ever since the Supreme Court gutted uh, mm-hmm. the Voting Rights Act. Yes. This has been an issue in local communities. And That's the Democratic right. Party has solely focused on national and has dr- been dragging its feet. Mm -hmm. around dealing with local legislators. It's been dragging Mm -hmm. its feet every time Black people come to the table. As Reverend Michael McBride has Mm -hmm. shared, the Mm -hmm. Democratic Party has not been loyal to us. Now, I want want to speak That's deep. Wait, I'm sorry. I just want to like sit on that for a second because that's very deep and bold for you to say in this moment. And so are you saying that the hunger strike is to symbolize a strike from the Democratic Party? It connects that our dissatisfaction with the Democratic Party. Yeah, that, like let's y'all, be clear here. The Republican yeah. Party is has clearly the Confederate Party. They are not a friend. They are not a friend. People. We must we defeat a, them. Right. We have leverage in the Democratic Party, but our mm-hmm. primary concern should be the black community. 
That's yeah. who we serve. And by having a concern for the black community, we always enhance democracy for everybody. So right. everybody wants to be universal first. But we find out that when black people are particular, we always influence the universal because every time democracy is saved, it's either by a black woman or a group of black people come together. Dang. Ah, you're so right. OK, so let's can we just like trace that history a little bit? <laughs> so like go back to abolition, right? Come and on. Who was it? Really? You can go back that far. Go back That's to right. abolition. Who was it who actually sparked? The Second Great Awakening. It was the the rise of the Black Church. That's right. It was that's actually and that's what's what sparked the abolitionist movement. Exactly. It was black people who organized, <laughs> free black people who organized the the abolitionist movement in Philadelphia, in the city where I'm sitting right now, and that is what sparked the rest of the movement to go out from there. Okay, now let's move forward. So it was black people who who pushed. The Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act over the line. And who did that benefit? Everybody, Everybody. else. And Everybody. And interestingly enough, black and white women have been the biggest beneficiaries of the civil yes. rights movement. They yes. participated, but it should be really clear that the whole space for white feminism mm -hmm. was created by a black feminist frame. So as black women were creating spaces, they were enlarging spaces for white women at the same time. We've always said that we, when we are particular, we're not exclusive. Right. We expand. So now our, our Latinx sisters and brothers benefit. I, I had an experience with one of my good friends, one of my good friends who runs the Amman Project here in in Chicago, that's the Inner City Muslim Action Network. His name is Rami Nashivi. He's also a, a MacArthur Genius Award winner. Wow. They designed mm -hmm. the only memorial for Martin Luther King Jr. in Chicago, a group of Muslims, primarily who were first and second generation into this country. And this is what Rami said that knocked my socks off at the dedication, he says, and he's Palestinian. And he said, for those of us who are from the Muslim tradition, we must thank our Black brothers and sisters. We have been given democracy and space because, and he points to the memorial, he points at Dr. King, he said, because wow. of this man, I can practice my faith. Wow, it's so true. That's, 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 that's deep. true. That's deep. It's that true. is really deep. A Black Baptist minister expanded a Muslim brother coming from Palestine whose family is actually from Bethlehem what? <laughs> to be able to practice his faith in the United States. Wow. That just gave me chills. It really did. And tangibly speaking, when you look at the AIM movement, American Indian movement, they chart their path. They were inspired by the civil rights movement. Yes. When you look at Cesar Chavez, he was inspired by the civil rights movement. When you look at the disabilities movement, they rose yes, in the 1970s. Yes. They were, they literally used Brown versus the Board of Education in their legal fights throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So you, what you say is absolutely true. And so, I, they, so that's really striking. So it is a hunger strike because it is a symbolic strike. People are saying, look, we are not satisfied. We need you to do better. Exactly. The other side has been looking at how to undermine voting rights since the Southern strategy. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And this is not anything new to us. There's mm -hmm. always been some type of attack in some form or fashion. But we yeah. had this. We had judges, the Supreme Court, 
mm-hmm. on our side and, and all of these peculiar little, you know, nuanced ways where, where we could push back on. Mm-hmm. Once that law came down, that decision came down, all of these Republican groups went into overdrive. Wow. And the Democratic Convention leadership did not think it as a priority because they didn't think that it was going anywhere. I'm like, well, ask oh, us. Whoa, 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 whoa. We know it's going somewhere. Ask us. We, we know. We're, we're experiencing this. Just talk to us. Yeah. We're on the ground. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. So how does this hunger strike then connect to your faith? Like how, why, how did, why is it clergy who are organizing? Well, because any time that you are fighting against principalities and powers, you go on a fast, a hunger strike. So think about it. before Jesus engages in his ministry, he has to go on a hunger strike in the desert to face the enemy, to face the devil. He has to go on this strike. When Daniel is standing before principalities, he goes on a hunger strike, or better yet, he goes on a fast and say, hey, look, just give me the fruits and vegetables. I don't want the food from your table. Don't give me your table food. Let me have food from my community. The fasting is a spiritual activity, not just a a physical action of removing food, but it means that as a collective group of 24 pastors, that we are praying together every evening. Oh, wow, are, really? Yes, every evening we come together and we, we have prayer. And we are praying for our nation, and for our community, and for democracy. We, we're praying that a new generation behind the millennial generation will continue to rise up that will hold spirituality in one hand and action in the other. And we'll be, be led by, you know, that great, wonderful, dark-skinned Palestinian Jew by the name of Jesus. Hello. <laughs> uh, I'm by. Who speaks yes. about the idea that, that you have the authority to be able to set the captives free. I want to ask a question because you brought up Black Jesus. You brought up the brown-skinned Palestinian who was colonized by white supremacist Rome who did not have a vote. And I wonder, how do you look at the scripture and see Jesus speaking to democracy, speaking to the vote? How do you connect those two things? Jesus was upending Roman rule through every action that he was participating in. There's one particular look at scripture that is rarely viewed in the American context. And it's usually when Jesus calls those disciples. He said to be fishers of, of men. And we spiritualize it. There he is, he's by this lake, by this sea. And uh, he calls uh, the guys that don't have much money first before he calls the wealthy guys, James and John, whose father owns a boat and sons of Zebedee and all of that. Mm -hmm. But what we forget is remember that the sea was owned by Rome. And as a result of seeing that this, knowing that the sea is owned by Rome, when he says, be fishers of men, All of them were fishermen. Remember, they had to give so much of their fish, of their money to Rome. Oh, my God. Calling these men, he was undermining the whole economic base of Rome. What? So people are following him. And all of a sudden, Rome is seeing a decrease in its money because this brother 
keeps calling other brothers and sisters to say, be fishers of your own people. Don't be fishers for Caesar. Come and follow me and watch what happens. And then as a result, somebody, if they had telephones back then, they said, we're looking uh, at the account here and uh, we're not getting as much money as we previously were. So please tell us, tax collectors, who you are on our payroll because we allow you to steal from your own people what's going on. And the conversation continues. And those who are working on behalf of the empire have issues with Jesus while people are growing and developing in the love that he is talking about. And a revolution is taking place that is nonviolent, that is centered on love and justice. And it's just a powerful thing to see. Jesus is upending empire. Okay, so I knew that, but I never connected those dots before. What? Okay, so first of all, is there a book we can read to go deeper into that? Where'd you get uh, that from? Is that something so, that like you thought yeah. of one day? <laughs> no, no. Really? B- Binding the Strongman is a great book that is an interpretation of Mark and that is one by a phenomenal, phenomenal scholar. You can also look at uh, Aubrey Hendricks' piece yes. on Jesus, a tremendous, tremendous piece that he breaks these things down. But looking at the history of Rome, John D- uh, Dominic Crossan does a piece saying, talking about what Rome owned and that anything mm-hmm. in the sea is owned by Caesar and anything that you're allowed to have is solely by the blessing and privilege of Caesar. So you have to thank Caesar when you fish, not God. And so Jesus is saying, stop fishing for him. And so it's a double entendre language. So how do you use language that doesn't set off alarm bells among the people who've colonized you? Be fishers of men. And really he's saying, yo, look, roll with me. Stop fishing for this dude because my father owns the sea. Not Caesar. Right. And we know that See the difference between, let me just say the difference between the way that the black church or people who have been oppressed read the scripture, because we can actually, we can get into the minds and also get into, we get into the scene of what's happening and see in a 360 view, right? We're not just looking at when I'm in the white evangelical church, we tend to read that scripture and only look at the inward spiritual, oh, fishers of men, like, but when you're in the black church and you're in marginalized spaces, what you're focused on is how might they be experiencing this moment inside of this text right, right. And, it, and the political context matters. And so the thing that strikes me about what you just did is that you looked at the impact of their actions, of Jesus' actions, not just what he said. The impact right. was an economic impact. It had an economic impact on Rome. And that is one thing that can tell us what Jesus' intention was. But older preachers would do this all the time, which you just mentioned. I love the way that in Black folk preaching that they talk about when Jesus died, who was excited? This whole preacher talks about, he said, and the owner of the funeral home is excited because no longer people were being raised from dead. The doctor was excited because now he had more patients because they were not being healed. You know, the grocer was excited. You know, he was going through all of the economic. That's what he was really doing. He was going through all of the economic impact of Jesus's death because Jesus was causing business to slow down. Right. And that's something that's part of the black tradition to be able to look at things from a variety of angles where in the evangelical tradition, it's personal. It's yeah, about it's you. Exactly and when it becomes right. personal, it then has no 
our faith should threaten empire just by being who we are. And if it's personal, it can then be next to Caesar. And mm-hmm. Caesar doesn't have an issue. And he can pat you on the head and say, just go over there and just do your little worship. But when it's personal and public, then there's a tension that happens. Ooh, that's really good. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. Many listeners of Freedom Road Podcast have tracked with me over the course of years. You have been growing with me in conversations with people, but I think that there is nothing more powerful than the power of story, family story, to heal the world. So that's why I wrote Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. Our nation right now is really at the brink In many ways, we're torn. We are more divided than we've been in more than a century. Now is the time for us to listen to each other's stories. Now is the time for us to lay down our arms and simply try to understand how we got here. And as a result, maybe even gain a new vision for where we can go together as a nation, as one America. 30 years of research, 10 generations, one family, the roots of race, the degradation, the resistance, and the rebellion, the rising, the calls to truth-telling, repair, and forgiveness. Fortune drops on February 8, 2022, so order now, and let's continue to walk this road together. So Black churches have traditionally made a big deal out of election days, like souls to the polls and pulpit time to candidates and other things. Why does the vote matter theologically? The vote itself, why does the vote matter theologically? The vote speaks to the methodology where we keep at bay being three-fifths of a human being. Hello. Because in the Constitution, it's written in our document. Mm -hmm. The vote keeps at bay the weakness of the 13th Amendment. Yeah. Because the 13th Amendment says we abolish slavery. But if you're incarcerated, I can still utilize your labor, whether or not you're guilty or not. Even though it's going to be, most of you are going to be black and brown, I have to find a way to still use your labor. So the vote is our shield against the white supremacist threads that still 
function within this project that we are attempting to build known as democracy and and the yet to be United States of America. So it is the most effective tool that we have. And if that vote is removed, we then turn our destiny over to Confederate and antebellum sources and forces who've consistently, let's be real. Yeah. Consistently that those Confederate hates, to use the Southern term for ghosts, mm-hmm. they have haunted the American project since Point Comfort, Virginia. That's right, since 1619. Since 1619. And theologically, like connecting those dots to stave off the hate of slavery and the hate of Jim Crow is to protect the divine call to exercise dominion in the world. It's to protect the image of God in, in all people, yes, but particularly yes. in our people. Yes. And that's the thing. It's like when we protect the image of God in us, we transfer that protection always to other people. And that's one of the beautiful aspects of the Black freedom struggle, because it is not exclusive. It it does not balkanize its its ideas of freedom. Mm -hmm. Whether you're talking about Fred Hampton or Malcolm X or Fannie Lou Hamer or an Ella Baker, they or Zella Baker would say, this thing is bigger than a hamburger. I love, I love, I love, I love, I love that. Say that? Yeah, she said it. She says talking about you. You all are sitting down thinking you're trying to get a hamburger. She said this thing is bigger than a hamburger. Oh, it's not about what you eat. It's about your how your children will live and what they will believe. It's bigger than a hamburger. So stop thinking it's about someone getting access to food. Uh, it's, it's about spiritual it's, food. And it's not even just about this generation, right? Like our actual vote, which will be suppressed in this next election in 2022. And God forbid in 2024. But we, it's also about the seventh generation from now, the 10th generation from Gosh. now. I love, I love it. This is more than a hamburger. This is more than even our own need right now. This is really about who will we be? Yes. Yes. Who, who will, will we, we be? be? So what has been for you, what has been the impact? Because I know that your church is incredibly robust in its civic engagement in Chicago. What's been the impact of that robust engagement in civil society of, of getting out there, not just to get in your prayer, your praise on or your prayer on on Sunday morning, but actually taking the blessing of a people who are flourishing out into the streets and into the voting booth and voting itself. What's been the impact of robust voting in your community? In well, Chicago, you can see the how the community has been can be, can be altered when you have a robust voting block in your neighborhood, and, and all politics are local. And right. one story of what we were able to to do by sharing the importance of voting is we were able to to renovate a, a library in our, in our neighborhood. It's called it's to call the Carter G. Woodson Regional Library, and it has the largest collection the Vivian Harsh Collection, largest collection of African-American literature in the Midwest. 
Wow. But it was falling apart. It, it um, had not been given the resources by the city. And because we have such a great voting population and people recognize the, the importance of everything from voting for who will be mayor, but also who's going to be the library commissioner. <laughs> wow. You know, all, all of these things. So, so yeah. as a church, we met, and our community development corporation was the lead on this. As a church, we met with officials. We demanded, along with all these other community groups, that we want a library that protects, preserves, and promotes our culture. It's right here in the heart. It is the library that's used by the University of Illinois. If you want to get the letters that Du Bois was writing when he was in Chicago, you have to go to this library. If you want to get information about Fred Hampton, you have to go to this library. My if you want to God. get actual writings of Ida B. Wells, you have to go to this library. Yes, what? it is the Carter G. Woodson Regional Library. Scholars use it all the time, but it wow. was falling apart. The facade had been, was falling apart. Because the city got the wrong contractor or somebody got paid and just did a poor job. And so they put a scaffolding up instead of repairing it because they were afraid of the lawsuits that somebody might get hit by a brick or something. So it had been there so long that people got, got used to the fact that, oh, the library is falling apart. And many times you can get used to oppression. You can get used right, to right. it. Be it becomes normative, the, 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 the peeling paint or the bricks that are falling apart, which put at risk your culture. And so we met with the officials and we said, hey, we want to get, need a new library, this, that, and the other. And our, our community development corporation did such a wonderful job. And they said, well, we don't have the money. The budget is not there. And they placed on the table, here's what you did for, for five other libraries in neighborhoods that were not Black. New and renovated. What about us? Oh, well, right. so, well, we spent the money. Then it would begin. We spent the money. Okay. What the very good. No problem. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for meeting with us. So then my task was on Sunday, I made an announcement at church. I shared with them some information about the library and said, we need you all to go to the, the library commission meeting. Now, they're always open to the public. Nobody goes to a library commission meeting unless who you're goes to a library yeah. commission. The people who are like Dewey Decimal meeting. nerds go. That's it. That's I didn't know there was a library commission. <laughs> the, nobody goes to it. This is well, the libraries have no controversy. They're just yeah. Everybody loves a library. Yeah, well, that's, so yeah. We show up and you have all these people who show up at the library commission meeting who have one single question in mind about the Carter G. Woodson Library. I didn't go, so the meeting. <laughs> ended at 7.59 at 8.01. I got a call. Uh, Reverend Moss, can we meet? Sure, we can meet. I'd be more than happy. So our team, oh, my God. Are you kidding me? Wait, let me just stop right there. <laughs> so you said when your congregation showed up and asked, what yes. about the W.G. Woodson? Is it Woodson, Woodson. Yes. Mm -hmm. The Woodson Library. What about this library? A minute after the meeting, you got a call saying, after can we talk? After the meeting was adjourned, I got a call. What now? Immediately See? from the commissioner and the chair. Can yeah. we meet at the library? I said, sure, sure, sure. So we brought our team. The community groups uh, showed up, the representatives, and they said, well, we found the money. We got a grant for $10 million. And we said, that's what? right. But that's <laughs> not enough. We said, that's not good enough. We said that those who build this library must look like us. 
they must come out of the mass incarceration system so we can train sisters and brothers. And it must be green in your training. I'm going to tell. I'm going to tell. And they said, well, we've never done anything like this. The city has no plan or pattern or framework for that. And we said, we're glad you said that. Because our church used the same pattern for renovation. It was green, it was black, and people coming out of the mass incarceration system. And so here was the refrain. We just simply said, if a church that doesn't have the budget of a city can do this, why can't a city that has a budget of billions of dollars be able to spend to develop? So long story short, we got a brand new library. Hallelujah. <laughs> so, and it is it and specializes. Done. Yeah, it's beautiful. It is the jewel of the city. If you come to Chicago, you really should visit it. It's right down the street from our church. It's in the heart of the black community. It's amazing. But that is civic engagement. That yeah. is understanding the power of your vote. That yes. is knowing that you have the right to be able to say to elected officials, how you spend my money is this way. And yeah. again, when the library is built, though it has a focus on black culture, again, it benefits the entire city. That's what Black democracy does and Black faith. We are always benefiting everybody in the process. It's really true. As scholars flock to this library in order to, to learn more about mm-hmm. things that will benefit everybody, it's like an all-win three, three, four times over. I mean, in many different layers. Wow. And so the voices and the, the power of the community that comes together to say, this is what we want. It doesn't just stop in the voting booth. It starts there, but it has to carry through. After the person is in office, you've got to actually continue to push them to do right and to do what is just and not to tell them this is what's just because they don't know. They're just up there. They need us to tell them which way to go. They they need to know. They need to meet the senior who's lived in the neighborhood for 40 years and say, baby, I was on your campaign. (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, we need this library. Because I, I take my grandchildren there. They need <laughs> to meet the mother and father who have an eight-year-old who now bring their child to the library's reading room that has these special programs for small children. They need to meet the family because this <laughs> library specializes in Alzheimer's and dementia help to give you resources. So they need to meet the family of people who are caretakers. And when you meet your constituents in that way, and, and they're communicating to you that I voted for you because this vote is a protection. So I'm not three-fifths of a person. You saw the library as a throwaway because it was Carter G. Woodson name. It was in this neighborhood. This is not the jewel of, of the city, even though what was in it is nothing but jewels. That's right. The information. That's right. Treasure. But the vote is our shield against the three-fifths idea. And that's what we were doing. That is so fabulous. The vote is our shield against the three-fifths idea. Can I ask you, what do you say to people who are not African-American? What do you say to immigrants, people who are coming in, who, who have come into this larger narrative that has been playing itself out for 400 years? What do you say to people who are of European descent, who are trying to figure out how to do right, right now, in our context right now, what's your message to them? The vote is your shield against the Chinese Exclusion Act. The vote is your shield against Irish need not apply. 
The vote is a shield against cages created for children. The vote is your shield. We against women the having vote. the vote taken away from them. Exactly. It's, it's a shield if we are to build a democracy. It, it is a shield. And then our civic engagement, the vote and then our civic engagement is our sword where we can carve out, it's more of a pin really, is what we do. We create policy that is beneficial to our children, to our grandchildren, to, to other generations. Think about this, the, the public school system was conceived by people who were formerly enslaved Africans. They wanted schooling for their children, but they shaped the policy to bless all. Wow. I did not know that. That's yeah. deep. Where did what? Robert who Smalls. Was it? Robert oh, Smalls. Robert Smalls. People, yeah, Robert Smalls, one of the legislators in South Carolina, in was South Carolina. one of the people who started the first framing of what we know as the public school system. I did uh, know Nicole that. Hannah Jones writes about it in the collection, the Since the Nineteen Project. But oh, that's a fascinating right. thing. That you know, what are you going to do with all of these formerly enslaved four million people who had been enslaved, and the beginning policies for what we now know as public school system was formed by us, but it was designed specifically to bless all. See, now I have that book, but I actually have to read it. <laughs> it's so big. It's so big. I will. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to start reading it this week. This it's great. Weekend. I hope one day. If she's amazing. listening, if I just want to shake your hand one day outside of COVID. I know people don't want to shake your hand. Me too. But, Me yeah. too. <laughs> but I'm really appreciative of what she has done, and I'm delighted that she is at Howard raising a new generation yes. of journalists, writers, and thought leaders. Yes, amen. Yes, and amen. So you mentioned the vote being uh, a shield against, and then you also talked about your children, like it's a protection for your children. Can I ask you, what are your dreams for your children? And what is the dream that is rising from the African-American community, the movement for Black lives, the manifest, the Black Manifesto, other spaces that, that you've been party to of what America could look like if we all had the vote, if we yeah. all, if we could finally achieve that beloved community that Dr. King talked mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. what, is, what does it look like mm -hmm. for our families seven generations from now? The poet, I I adore by the name of Eve Hewing. I hope one day we'll be able to interview Eve. She's Chicago-based, a wonderful, amazing poet. She's also a professor at the University of Chicago. She's an intellectual. She's married to this economist who's a member of our church. Wow. This, is one, this is a wonderful young couple. But Eve, and, and I can't quote the poem, but she wrote a poem that she called it Afrofuturism, where it's about Emmett Till grew up. Wow. It's mundane. It's about him until just going to get some ice cream. Just the, the simplicity of being a child and doing the wonderful things of a child. Wow. And to be able to flourish. And that's my dream that all Black children will be able to do the simple things, the joyous actions and mischief that does not cause death that children can be involved in. That's my prayer for my children, for other people's children, to, so that they can have those moments of being carefree and knowing that they are in a safe, protected space. I think that that's something that 
we dream for collectively as aunts and uncles and as cousins and parents and our godparents and and coaches and you name it to Mm -hmm. see children flourish. That's really one of the things that I would like for there to be a story of, of Trayvon Martin where he is flourishing and not martyred. Of Breonna Taylor, where she, we can see her further graduations from different institutions. That's re- really my dream. We just, we want to be, we want everything that everybody else has. And it doesn't mean that it takes away from you. Because remember, every time we get a little bit what we fight for, it always benefits other people. Everybody. <laughs> it never ceases to amaze me. Yeah. No matter, anytime we try to do something. It always benefits other people. When Black women say, as I'm thinking of Joanne Robinson in Alabama, who is really the true organizer of the uh, Montgomery bus boycott, mm-hmm. when her women's political council, when they say, this is what we're going to do, she says to the men, says, now this is going to benefit you. If we open the door for sisters, brothers, you're going to benefit. When we open the door for those who have been marginalized, we, we benefit. I think about differently and differently able folk. There was a fight about ramps. It, it's cost money, this, that, and the other. And now all these people are like, you know, I got an old, I need, I need a ramp, you know? <laughs> right. That's right. It, it benefits everybody. It benefits everyone. It benefits everybody. And that's the power of democracy. And we've got to keep giving a vision of democracy that is spiritually rooted, that sees each individual as interconnected. E- even if you're, you're not a person that's rooted in spirituality, the idea of human connection is part of this universe. We are all connected. Every flower has a root system connected to the soil, is affected by the trees and the air. There is an interconnection we cannot deny. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Check the show notes to see how you can connect with the voting rights struggle in America. The Freedom Road Podcast is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This episode is engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road Podcast is produced by Freedom Road, LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.com. Stay in the know by signing up for our updates. We promise we will not flood your inbox. We invite you to listen again next month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road.